0: morning. How's it, everyone? It's good to see you all. So, as Paul said, my name's Ollie, father of two wild young boys. Husband of one lovely wife, Debs, who is taming those wild young boys as we speak. Um, great. So, uh, Nehemiah. And we've been working through Ezra and Nehemiah. If you've been around for a while, you'll know that it's actually one book originally. Um, learning how to read the Old Testament, learning how to put on gospel lenses in order to read it properly, looking at how this story fits into the context of God's bigger story in Scripture, and it's been so good, eh, hasn't it? Paul's done an incredible job of serving us and uh, Bates and the guys who've preached so far. And uh, so the last two weeks, we've kind of zoomed in and been looking at this guy, Nehemiah, in more detail, seeking To learn something about how God deals with us uh, as individuals and communities, how he works in us and reveals what he has called us to in the world. How each one of us who follows Christ has been saved by grace for good works, right? As, As we heard last week, as part of God's good plan and purpose for the world. And so as we've been looking uh, over the last few weeks at lessons from Nehemiah's life, we're continually asking, as we read, what is descriptive here? What is descriptive and what is prescriptive? So if we look at at a text, we say, is this purely descriptive? That is, is it historical? Is this just something that God wants us to see as an historical event? Or is this prescriptive? Is this God's desire for all of us as children of God? And I think what we're starting to see from our study of the life of Nehemiah is that it's very much in the heart of of God that his people today, like Nehemiah did in his day, seek to live in a way that's filled with empathy toward one another and compassion for the world around us. Would you agree? Is it safe to draw the conclusion that it's the expectation of God that we should walk with one another First and foremost, with a covenant community of faith, the church, in a way that's empathetic and compassionate, and then from there, for that compassion and empathy to overflow out of these walls and into the broader community of Stellenbosch, its surroundings, into our nation and the world. But before we talk more about Nehemiah, I want us to consider something about the way we view the characters in the Bible. I think frequently we equate these characters that we read of as these spiritual superheroes. These great men and women of God who tower over world history with single-minded holiness and devotion. Sort of like Slater in the world of surfing. Now I know most other preachers in this pulpit will talk about football and golf and all those things. But today you got me and from me you're not going to get much else but surfing. Sorry. Anyway, back to Slater, this guy is the uncontested goat of the surfing world, the greatest of all time. He's won 11 world championship titles with 55 world tour contest wins, seven Pipeline Masters trophies, that's the most coveted trophy in surfing. He's both the youngest and the oldest surfer to win a world title, and at the tender age of 47... 47 is still mixing, up with, mixing it up with guys 30 years his junior and competing at the highest level of the sport. The guy's incredible. And so often when we read the Bible, we're reading it wrong because we're looking at these people like they're Slater. And we get so demoralized because we could train. I could train for the rest of my life and never have a hope of riding a wave remotely like they can. And so we kind of just give up. We're like, oh, why should I even bother? But the thing is, if you read it properly, the beauty of the Bible is that it really does not focus on the supreme giftedness of some individuals, of some spiritual supermen and woman, as those who really achieve something for God. Sure, some some of those Bible characters were incredibly gifted leaders, some of them. But for the most part, the Bible is not a book of heroes. It is a book about one hero. God and his son, Jesus, whose great glory is displayed in his mercy towards and in his redemptive use of ordinary sinful plonkers like me and you. Nehemiah is no super saint. He is an ordinary man who takes God seriously and therefore takes prayer seriously. He's not a slater. He's more like my buddy Mikhail, who runs a surf school in Strand. Now, Mikhail's got some serious moves himself. But he's also a coach and he's your best shot of learning how to stand up on a wave and ride it. And so if you consider this picture, that like the waves of the ocean, God is continually sending waves of grace into our lives. And his desire is for us to learn to ride them. And he brings people like Nehemiah alongside us to coach us, to teach us how to access the grace of God through prayer. So today we're going to zero in on Nehemiah 1 and 2, and particularly how Nehemiah engages with God in prayer. I'm going to let him coach us a bit. And so let's pick up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, if you've got your Bibles here. And we've been in this chapter for a couple of weeks now, but you'll remember if you've been around that this is just after Nehemiah, sitting in the capital of what was then uh, the Persian Empire, Susa, has heard a report from one of his brothers That the remnant of God's people who had returned to Jerusalem are still living in a state of anarchy. He describes it like this. The walls are broken down and the gates of the city are burned. That picture means that these people, God's people, God's remnant are defenseless. They're unprotected. They're living in anarchy because the walls and the gates of the city are broken down. They're defenseless. So picking up in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open Remember the word that you commanded your servant, Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed, be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And he tells us who this man is. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And moving on to chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, so he orientates us in history, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. I just pray quickly. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God. Thank you for the eternal story of a redeeming God, pursuing his people through the ages, throughout history, Father, that you are the hero of the story. Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear and to see what you're saying to us through your word, Father. Father, I pray that we would allow you to do a deep work in us this morning by your spirit. And I pray that you would teach us how to pray, how to commune with you, how to converse with you through our days and our nights, Lord God. Through the example of Nehemiah and through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool, so what have we been speaking about for the last couple of weeks? Calling, right? And this thing of holy discontent. And if you have, if you missed those messages, really encourage you to go to our website and, and listen to Paul's preachers on those two topics. They're really outstanding. We've looked at how God calls individuals to follow him in his mission of redeeming creation, of reconciling people to himself, of building up a covenant people, the bride of Christ, who will live in responsive, grace-powered obedience to him and participate in the restoration of the world that he's initiated and promised in Christ. We've looked at how his main way of doing so is by creating in us a sense of holy discontent with the way things are, with the world we see around us, especially as it conflicts with what God says in his word about the world and how he wants it to be. And note what's happening here. Nehemiah is, as I said, not some super saint, not some giant, some spiritual giant, just an ordinary guy with a job serving a demanding employer, stuck in a rut, who's experiencing some serious, serious holy discontentment. It says he wept for days, he mourned and he fasted. The guy was seriously experiencing holy discontentment. Who's seeing that, like it or not, his life is more than about just himself and his cushy job and his glass of seriously classy red wine. And he's processing these things that are happening to him with prayer. And he's doing it with two distinct types of prayer. The first type of prayer we see Nehemiah practicing is a chunk of prayer. If you've been around church for any length of time, you will have heard of the concept of a quiet time or daily devotions. Now, Quiet time might not necessarily be the best way to describe it because I don't think that it conveys the right idea of us engaging with God. Sure, there might be times where you sit quietly in awe before God in worship. There's other times when you're shouting. There's other times when you're worshiping. There's other times when you're speaking and wrestling and struggling with God. So quiet time is probably not the best way of describing it. Anyway, but the point is that if we want to grow into maturity as followers of Christ then the place we need to start is by setting aside a regular chunk of time every day to connect with our Father. Artie Kendall, who's a, who's a preacher and author, I remember listening to one of his preachers, and he said this, love is spelled T-I-M-E. And that's true in our relationship with God. Love is spelled time. The focus is not on the technique or the, the form that we use, the formula that we use. There's many helpful plans and devotional techniques that you can use but those I can can I encourage you are not the focus the point is relationship with God the point is connecting with our father and then in just an encouragement don't try to be slater don't be silly and try if you've you've never done this before or if you if you haven't really had a regular devotional habit try and start your day with an hour of prayer now that's like trying to paddle out a 20-foot pipeline in Hawaii when you've been surfing for three months, if we, if we carry on with the surfing analogy, you will break yourself. <laughs> Start off with five to 10 minutes a day of focused prayer and build from there. And don't make it law. What happens if you miss a day? On, when was it? Friday night. I had great plans to wake up at five and get going with my, my preach prep and then had two nightmare nights in a row with the kids waking up and disrupted sleep and slept through all my alarms I woke up at like 7 with the kids and that was like devotional time gone preach prep time gone <laughs> and you're like oh what do you do if you miss a day this happens life happens stuff happens guys don't think that God looks at you and he's like you make me sick you missed your devotional how could you even come into my presence no no you pray throughout the day, you connect with God you, and you start again the next day remembering that his mercies are new every morning. So we see that the one type of prayer is a regular chunk of daily prayer and we want to grow it. Maybe one day you'll be like Luther and Calvin and you'll spend an hour and a half of focused prayer time every day. May the Lord get us there, but let's start somewhere small and build from there, right? The next type of prayer we see is, like a, is, a, is a rifle shot prayer. So having had his chunk of prayer, Nehemiah also practices short prayers throughout his day. We see it there in in chapter 2. It says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Note, it's important. He's not at church. He's not in life group. He's not in his prayer closet. He's at work. He's at work. He's walking down the corridor to the king's chamber or wherever it is that he's having dinner. And he's about to make an outlandish request of his boss that could get him in serious, serious trouble. Like life-ending trouble. Because if the king didn't like what you asked him, he could just kill you. And so he's aware of God. He's walking with God. He's asking for the mercy he needs. And he's expecting God to give it. He's firing up, he's shooting up this rifle shot prayer in the moment. And these are great for helping us to stay connected with God through the day. So you might turn off the radio while you're driving. Wow, there's a revolutionary idea. And pray for the, the meeting that you're driving to, the thing that's coming up. You might, as you walk into work, walk past the receptionist and note that she's looking, looking, something's not looking right, she's looking a bit down. You might fire up a prayer to God for her as you walk past. You might be feeling anxious and fearful that something that just happened, or news that you just heard. And you just shoot up a prayer. It happened to me this week. I got, some, got a report. I got some news. Uh, instantly, my heart started to move into anxiety and to fearfulness. And, oh, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And I just felt the Holy Spirit remind me, Father, I trust you. You're my guardian. You're my fortress. We start to shoot and fire up these prayers in the moment. And so, it might be for some of us that we are great, especially for those high-achieving types you're great with the, the chunks of prayer. But you get your devotional time and you, you have a great time with God in the morning and you spend your half an hour, or your hour, and then you close the door and you walk out into your day and you forget everything that happened there. <laughs> and then some of us are great at the rifle shots. We like praying throughout the day, bam, bam, like firing off these prayers, connecting with God, but like we, we don't have a regular discipline of, of a serious chunk of time connecting with with God, or building intimacy and relationship with God. That's like relying on WhatsApps as the only form of conversation and connection in your marriage. Somewhere things are going to get strained, my friend. <laughs> you need that FaceTime, you need that regular heart connection to build intimacy and to grow in your walk with Christ. So, how are you doing with prayer? How are we doing with prayer? If you're anything like me you stink at it <laughs> let's admit it guys we are not great at prayer we are not good at prayer i'm gen- speaking generally there might be some really sorry it might be really spiritual people here who are really great at it but let me ask you this question if you have an hour unprecedented event an hour opens up in your day and you have nothing else to do your wife takes the kids and goes off your phone is off there's no work distractions what do you do with that hour Oh, I'm gonna just, just going to take this hour and I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with God. Yeah, oh, you're lying. <laughs> I bet you you didn't do that. <laughs> Why is it that that is possibly the last thing that we're likely to do in that scenario? We're going to catch up on series. We're going to you know, check up on our favorite sports team. We're going to WhatsApp a friend. Why is prayer kind of the last resort? Nasil mentioned it in her word this morning that she brought. There's opposition. There is very real opposition. This prayer is a struggle because we are living in a war. We are, if you're following Jesus, you are engaged in a war with a deadly enemy who has a deeply vested interest in us not praying. Because he knows that when God's people start praying, things are going to start going badly for him. Light starts to break in. Darkness is overcome. Aslan is on the move. The other thing is that our beliefs about ourselves, if we believe that we are awesome, if we believe that we are sufficient, if we believe that we are wealthy in ourselves, if we believe that we are morally perfect, if we believe we're not needy, we will not see much reason to pray. John Piper, good old J-Pip, can't, preach a sermon without quoting him. Prayer is the open admission that without Christ we can do nothing. And prayer is the turning away from ourselves to God in the confidence that he will provide the help we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy So why do we struggle to pray? We struggle to pray because there's a war, there's opposition. We struggle to pray because sometimes we believe the wrong things about ourselves. And another thing is that we have wrong beliefs about God. And I want to say this, everyone, whether you're a believer in Jesus or a sold-out atheist, is a theologian. Everyone has some beliefs around who God is, even if it's that he's not there and he doesn't exist. Or maybe that he created the world and now he's on some cosmic holiday and lets the whole failed experiment totter onto destruction because he's lost interest. But where did we get these beliefs from? Whose voice are we listening to? Like it or not, no matter how independent a thinker you might fancy yourself to be, we are all shaped by something. Where does your idea of God come from? Does it come from our culture, from social media, from the things we watch on TV and the things we read in newspapers and magazines and online? Maybe from our parents, maybe from a lecturer at university or a teacher at school, maybe from our friends. I think Paul's favorite quote is A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our beliefs about God inform how we respond to Him and they deeply and fundamentally shape how we live on both a conscious and a subconscious level. Matt Chandler, who leads a church in the States, says this, if your beliefs about God are rooted only in you, in what you think, you have created an an impotent, cheap, weak God who will never be able to sustain you. You have created an impotent, cheap, weak God who will never be able to sustain you. If you created your own God, let me guess what he's like. He gets you what you want. He doesn't say no to you often. Is that not the definition of a cruel parent, a parent who never says no to his child? And so the hard reality is, Unless we are continually allowing God, through Scripture, to inform our view of who He is and who we are, we are in constant danger of shaping God into a vain idol of our own imagining. More like a genie in a bottle than the sovereign Lord of the universe. And there are so many in the church today who are disillusioned with God, disappointed with God, frustrated with God, because God didn't give them something He never promised them. We are, despite our great access to information and knowledge, vastly ignorant of Scripture. And deeply impoverished in our view of who God is. And the only cure for that, the only antidote, is to return to the Word of God. The self-revelation of God in Scripture. And so what does Nehemiah, who's clearly grown up studying the Torah, who has allowed the Word of God to shape and inform his beliefs, what does he believe about God? I want to mention four things. The first is, we are not awesome. God is awesome. We are not awesome. God is awesome. He says, oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. That's a great way to start your prayers, by the way. We start our prayers so often with me. Oh God, me. Oh God, this. Oh God, this situation. No, how about starting your prayers with God, you. God, you're awesome. God, you're great. God, you can do this. Secondly, we see that God is a covenant-keeping God. That means that God keeps his promises. Thirdly, that God hears the prayers of his people and that God is powerful. He acts on those prayers. He answers them. His answer may not always be yes. It may not always be the answer that we wanted, but it's never I can't. Fourthly, we see that God is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. He upholds his side of the covenant even when we fail to keep ours. When we return to him and confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and restore our relationship with him. So where does Nehemiah get his beliefs about God? from Moses, from the Torah, from spending time in reading and studying the word of God. Just listening to his prayer, which we read earlier, it's clearly evident that this guy has spent significant time immersed in God's word. And now he begins to pray God's word back to him. As McLaren, the commentator, says, prayers which are cast in the mold of God's own revelation of himself will not fail of answer. Prayers which are cast in the mold of God's own revelation of himself will not fail of answer. True prayer, he says, catches up the promises that flutter down to us and flings them up again like arrows. That's beautiful. And so Nehemiah's prayer echoes the scriptures. Just look, have a look at how he starts off. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, And keep his commandments. So I want us to see that this is rooted in Scripture. Dev, if you could just bring up that Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, please. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, Moses writes this. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's almost word for word, verbatim, the prayer that Nehemiah is praying. You can see he's praying Scripture. So Nehemiah is approaching God, and as he does so, he's reflecting on the revealed character of God in Scripture. And he's praying that back to him. He's holding on to who God says he is. This is the ground and the basis of his prayer. If you can turn with me to Deuteronomy 4. Dev, if you could bring that up. Deuteronomy 4, verse 25. Again, Moses. Says this, When you father children... And children's children, and have grown old in the land. If you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you'll serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. So Nehemiah, in his prayer, is acknowledging that God keeps his promises, that God is just and righteous, that God does not just overlook our sin. And that the position that they were in that very day, the harsh realities of exile, the brokenness of Jerusalem, the fact that God's people were scattered among the nations and driven out, was something that God had foretold way back in Deuteronomy as a consequence of persistent sin and turning away from him. He says, God, you said this would happen, and now it's happened. And so he makes confession. He prays in verse 6 of Nehemiah chapter 1 Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. That you commanded your servant Moses. Note how Nehemiah owns his part in the mess with brutal honesty. You know, it's way easier to pray general prayers God forgive your people, God forgive your church for doing this and doing that than it is to get specific and pray, God, I've sinned. I and my family have been those instead of. Uh, who instead of building your kingdom have forsaken you and been busy with building our own little kingdoms. Let's talk about sin for a moment because confession of sin has kind of fallen on hard times in the church. We have all sorts of tricks these days for minimizing our sin, for explaining away our rebellion and hardness of heart, for excusing our indifference towards God. I know that because I do it. Perhaps it's hard for you to come to grips with the fact that the Bible calls you a sinner. Maybe you're a good person. You seek to do what's right. You pay your taxes. You treat people fairly. You fought against apartheid. You walk grannies across the road. How can you be a sinner? Well, part of the problem is that you're comparing yourself to the Guptas. You're comparing yourself to, I don't know, Oscar Pistorius. You've got this kind of selective vision bias because you're comparing yourself on a scale that God doesn't use. What about this? Why don't you tell people about Jesus? Why don't you tell people about Jesus? Is it because you're ashamed? Is it because you're afraid of what they might think of you? That means you're proud. (laughs) That means you're a sinner. (laughs) It means I'm a sinner. And that's why God says that the standard we need to look at is not other people. Because we're all dead in our sins. We're just at various stages in, in, of decay. Some, some are more decayed than others. Some corpses smell worse than others because they've been dead longer. But we are all sinners, the scripture tells us. We are dead in our sins and transgressions, separated from God. And so the standard that we need to look at is God himself. He is the only one who is pure. He is the only one who has never sinned. 1 John chapter 1 uh, verse 5 says this, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God's pretending that we have no sin or glossing over our sin or saying that it's not a big issue is tantamount to declaring our own Godhood. And it is the surest way to cut ourselves off from God's mercy. Remember what we said earlier, if we don't see our need, if we don't see our need for God, we are going to stink at prayer. Now back to Nehemiah. Having made confession of sins, Nehemiah begins to go after God's promises again. But now, now he's boldly pursuing God's mercy. He's pursuing the God of redemption, the God who buys back his people from slavery. Chapter 1, verse 8. Remember, Lord, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So again, here, Nehemiah is basing his prayers on the word of God. Let's compare this with the next section of Deuteronomy 4. where, having foretold them that God would scatter them if they persisted in sin. Moses records this promise of God in verse 29. Thanks, Dev. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you search after him, with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And so this is the promise that Nehemiah now clings to. That God will restore his people. That God will have mercy when his people turn back to him. And this is is where it gets interesting. This is where the rubber of our prayers meets the road of life. Nehemiah, having prayed the word of God and reflected on the character and the promises of God, doesn't just leave his devotional time in his prayer closet. Doesn't just forget about it and go out into his life, but he links it to his life. He takes it to his workplace. And he ends his prayer by praying his diary, by praying for his day, He says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so Nehemiah has seen something as he's been praying, as he's been reflecting and meditating on the scriptures and on the promises and the character of God. He's begun to see something of how the story of God is beginning to intersect with his story. Maybe he had an inkling of of the fact that his job being in the presence of the king, being a cupbearer to the king had some kind of significance in God's story. I don't know if he fully realized it, but I'm sure there was something begin, beginning to bubble under the hood there. E.M. Bounds says this, he says, the story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. So guys, just to recap, just to remind us of these four things when, we, when we're talking about approaching God in prayer. The first is, we are not awesome. God is awesome. The second, God is a covenant-keeping God. That is a God who keeps his promises. Thirdly, we said that God hears the prayers of his people, and God is powerful. He acts on those prayers. He answers them. Even though his answer may not always be yes, he answers and he is able. And fourthly, God is merciful. He does not give us what we deserve. He upholds his side of the covenant even when we fail to keep ours. When we return to him and confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and restore our relationship with him. And this is where it gets really beautiful because Nehemiah, was praying in the context of the old covenant. And I don't think he fully saw it then because he, he had this idea that they needed to keep the commandments of God in order to experience the blessings of God. But what we see through the story of Scripture is that there is no one, no one of us who can keep the commandments of God. And therefore by rights, none of us should be able to enter into and experience the blessings and the rest of God. There is one. There is one who kept the commandments of God. There is one who fully obeyed and walked in the ways of God, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so as we're going to take communion in a moment, and we're going to reflect on this, but I just want to read to you from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, starting in verse 7. And he's talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. And it says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But as we've been going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we begin to see that that covenant failed. It was not faultless. And so the story of God, the redemptive history of God that we see in Scripture is how God brought in a new covenant. For he finds fault with them, verse 8, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the one in Deuteronomy that he made with Moses that we read about. For they did not continue in my covenant, as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah, and so I showed them. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so the beautiful story of the New Testament is God bringing in a new covenant because he knew that the old one had failed. He knew that we could not do it. And as we heard so beautifully from Josh in his testimony this morning, God has done it in Jesus. And so we're going to celebrate communion in a moment. Um, and just going a little bit further on in, in Hebrews 9 from verse 15. I want to read this to you. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So when we come and we begin to pray according to the pattern of Nehemiah and we begin to confess our sins, we look to the gospel. We look to the death that occurred that redeems us from the transgressions that we've committed, from where we've fallen short. And we look at how God has dealt with our sins in Jesus. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this morning, we're gonna drink a little cup of red juice. If you haven't been around church, that symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ, which was shed so that your sins could be forgiven. Why? So that you could walk in and experience relationship, communion with your heavenly father, your, the God who created you. So if you're here this morning and you don't have that kind of a relationship with God, this is an incredible moment for you to enter into that relationship. And all that's required is a prayer where you say to God, Father, I've sinned. I've lived my life without you. Josh said it so beautifully, I couldn't say it better. He was trying to do it on his own and it failed. And God's extending an invitation to you this morning and he's saying, My son is faithful. He's provided the sacrifice for your sins so that you can come back to me. It is done. It is finished. There's nothing more that you can do. There's nothing more that you can add to it. There's nothing more that you can bring to the party. God has laid the table. Come. If that's you this morning, can I encourage you? Come. Tell someone that you came with, man, I want to pray that prayer. I want to to experience a relationship with Jesus. And then we take the bread, which is Christ's body, which was broken for us so that we could be united into his body. Christ was torn apart so that you and me, who are so different and diverse and broken and messed up, could be brought up and united and connected in communion across our diversity and our differences into one body through his blood and through his sacrifice. It's beautiful, guys. Can I encourage you? Come And grab the elements and then the band's going to lead us in a song. And we're going to end there.